Yes, Buck fans, this is the podcast that takes you back through all the best games, moments, and players in the history of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. This is the BuckPower.com podcast. Now, here's the unofficial team historian and your host from BuckPower.com, it's Paul Stewart. When you ask Buccaneer fans to name their favourite season, the two Super Bowl ones will always be called out first, but almost without fail, the 1997 season is quickly remembered. It was the year that the streak of 14 straight losing seasons ended. It saw the Bucks reach the postseason for the first time since 1982, and it was the birth of pewter power as the new colours were introduced to the world. And nowhere in that 1997 regular season was the turnaround in fortunes for Buck fans more evident than the Week 4 victory over the Miami Dolphins, a game featured on national television. Welcome to the BuckPower.com podcast. Live from Tampa, Florida, it's a hot summer night of the NFL on TNT. My name is Paul Stewart, editor of BuckPower.com for the last 20 years and the main source of all historical information on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And this game has particular relevance to me as I was there. I had travelled across the Atlantic for this game and also the one the following week against the Arizona Cardinals. So I'm able to recount firsthand the incredible atmosphere that night at the old Sombrero or Houlihan Stadium as it had been renamed. This was a Sunday night game. The NFL introduced Sunday night football in 1990 with TNT and then ESPN covering the games. Every NFL team would be featured at least once during a season, a stipulation that did not refer to the prestige Monday night game still being shown on ABC. The Bucks won their first Sunday night game in 1990 against Detroit and were 4-1 in such home games coming into 1997. ESPN had Mike Patrick and the unbelievably annoying Joe Theismann called in their games, but TNT, well they had the superb Vern Lundquist on play-by-play, being joined by Pat Hayden and Mark May. The turnaround in fortunes for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers had been dramatic over the previous 18 months. Tony Dungy had replaced Sam Weish as head coach. A new stadium was going up next door for opening in September 1998 and Bucko Bruce, he'd been consigned to distant memories. The Bucks were 3-0 and were the only real story in town. Joining us on this podcast is someone who is extremely familiar with the 1997 Buccaneers and the years that led up to this game. Nick Puglisi was the beat writer covering the Bucks for the Tampa Tribune for many years. Pugo, welcome to the show. Paul, it's good to be here. I'm honored to be on your podcast, but I'm going to start off and tell you that I listened to last week's podcast. In fact, I listened to all three of the previous podcasts, and Roy Cummings was so laudatory to you that I saw he was nominating you for the Nobel Peace Prize. So I'm going to, but I have to be nice to you, and here's why. You have stories about Nick Puglisi from the old days that I don't want out in public. So if I'm not nice to you during this podcast, you're going to release them to the world and I'll be just embarrassed. So I'm going to say, Paul, you're a great man, a great humanitarian and a huge number one Buck fan. I thought it was always the other way around, me being nice to you because you recruited me to work for the Tampa Tribune when you later became the sports editor. 
Okay, being serious. Nick, you covered the Bucks for all the losing seasons in the 1990s. But as 1997 came around, the Bucks started winning. That must have been a lot more fun as a journalist. Well, yeah, not only as a journalist, let me go back even further. I was actually a Bucks fan before I became a journalist when they started playing. I remember the 0-26 star, and when they won their first game, I was at the University of Florida. I went out on that Sunday and bought every, I'm sorry, that Monday, I bought every paper in the state. Back then you could do that. In those days when print was still king, I bought all the papers from Miami to Tampa to St. Pete to Orlando to Gainesville to Jacksonville. So I was there for the next week when they won their first home game against the uh, the Cardinals. So I was at that game with my dad. So I used to go to games, but then when I covered the Tampa Tribune, I used to start covering the team as a sidebar writer and, you know, doing different things. And then um, when I finally became the beat writer in 1990, yeah, those were, they were still, they were in the middle of that awful, awful streak, but they had all those losing, digit losing seasons. So I knew nothing but losing as, as a beat writer. And so uh, suddenly when 97 rolled around and there was a promise that would be a good season, it still was a little bit shocking to see how that team started that year. The choice of Tony Dungy as head coach was surprising to many. Jimmy Johnson and Steve Spurrier had both turned the job down, and Dungy had been passed over for many other opportunities around the NFL. How did you feel about him getting the job in 1996? You know, it's so silly to look back now and realize what Tony's become as a coach, and he's won a Super Bowl with the Colts, and the man he is, that people were so hesitant to hire him as head coach. Why? Because he was too nice. He was too religious. He was too black. I mean, you know, ridiculous. You look back now, and they, all the reasons why they wouldn't hire Tony Dungy as a head coach when he was so qualified and such a good person and turned out to be such a great coach. So I think we all like Tony. I mean, you know, he's, he, to this day, I've never dealt with a head coach in any sport who's more general is, is a word I want to use, but he just treated you like a man, whether it was his players, whether it was the media, whether it was the fans. Uh, he didn't talk down to you. So I, I think you look back, I think we all thought he would be a good coach, and we applauded the Glaciers for taking the chance and finally giving this guy the opportunity to become a head coach in the NFL. How did you find him as a person? Was he easier to work with than Sam Weish? Oh, well, yeah. Uh, let's see. Sam Weish, the guy who once I was interviewing uh, Paul Gruber on a Tuesday, an off Tuesday, uh, barged into the room, slamming up the door, and started cursing me up and down for a uh, story that was in the Tampa Tribune that day. <laughs> so, uh, and he walked out and pulled up to me and said, what was that all about? So, yeah. Now you have Tony Dungy. Even when Tony Dungy was upset with you, he got upset with a few things I wrote through the years. Uh, he wouldn't demean you. He wouldn't put you down. He would just say, yeah, I disagree with what Mr. Puglisi wrote in today's Tampa Tribune. And he would explain why he disagreed with it. And, and then he'd actually get back and talk back why you wrote what you wrote. You know, kind of a thing where, so yeah, he was, he was, a, he was a pleasure to deal with. I'll tell you a great little anecdote. The night he, the day he was hired, the night before we'd all got wind, the Bucks, he was the choice and the Bucks were going to hire him. So we all actually got a hold of him. And, um, he was very careful not to say what was going to happen the next day. Basically, he lied, you know, because he had a lie. So the next day after his introductory press conference, he basically, all the beat writers had gotten him off to the side. And the first thing he did, I'll never forget this, he apologized, apologized to all of us for lying to us the night before and saying he was in a tough situation. He was forced to do that. I mean, what other, do you see Bill Belichick apologizing to the Patriot writers? Not in a million years. So Tony was a good enough man. Also joining us on this podcast is Tommy Barnhart, who was part of Tony Dungy's first three Buccaneer teams. He was originally drafted by the Bucks in 1936, but played all around the NFL with the Saints, Bears, Redskins and Panthers before finally becoming a Buccaneer in 1996. Tommy, thank you for joining us on this podcast. What was Tony Dungy like as a head coach? Tony, Tony was a great coach. Uh, that was probably the best three years of my 14 years. Uh, Tony treated everybody professionally. Uh, didn't scream, didn't yell. Um, 
but he got his point across. He was, you know, as long as you did what you were supposed to do, you know, you were in good standing with him. Uh, and basically, it wasn't that he, I mean, he demanded a lot from a performance because we were playing at the level we were at. But at the same time, when you go back to it, he was all about basic fundamentals, you know, teaching you the basic fundamentals so that you can have something to build on. And his thought process was just very unique uh, as opposed to a lot of other coaches that I was with. But, you know, that being said, it made a lot of sense. And that's why I turned the program around so quick. What was the life of a punter like in the NFL for you? Well, I mean, the coaches, they got to feel comfortable with you and, you know, making sure that, you know, it's basically you're performing on your own. You know, a bad kick here, bad kick there can lead change of momentum can lead to a lot of negative things happening after that that can really hurt the team and so it's really kind of tough going in and change i mean a lot of people a lot of people think oh well that's the easiest job in the world but you know it's really not uh, i ask i always ask people you know how do you play golf do you play golf they're like yeah so how do you shoot they go well i, I barely break 90 i says okay i said well you can't even break 90 and you expect me saying it's an easy thing where I got to hit a moving object and the wind's blowing and you got 10 crazy guys coming at you. So it's really not that easy. And then once they think about it, they're like, oh, wow, it's really, I didn't really think about it that way. I'm like, yeah, that probably is a pretty tough job. So it's just, it's getting to understand because it has that knock of, you know, it's an easy job. It's easy to see that. But anytime you get any of one of those guys in another position to come back there and do what you do, once they do it once or twice and, destroy the position terribly they're like oh well, that's not as easy as i thought it would be so it, 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 you got sometimes it takes you a little bit to bounce around to get you know coaches to give you a, a good understanding to stick with you to give you the opportunity but once you get a place where you can kind of have a little bit of tenure there uh and get to feel comfortable with the other guys then then you pretty much you know you pretty much stick but it's just you've got to uh, – it's not like you're playing 80 plays a day like a lot of the other positions are. And, you know, you get your chances to go out there. And it's a little – it can be a little challenging at times to get situated. And then once you get situated, then as long as you, you work hard at your craft and put, uh, put you know, the energy and the effort forward, then you can pretty much stay in one place. Tony Dungy's coaching career did not get off to an auspicious start in 1996 as the Bucks lost their first five games and there were little over 34,000 at hand at the old sombrero as they lost to the Seattle Seahawks. His first win came after the bye week against the Minnesota Vikings and although the defence was starting to look pretty useful as the Tampa 2 took hold, more losses continued until the record was 1-8. They then followed an overtime win against the Raiders and a memorable victory in San Diego that will definitely be featuring in a future edition of this podcast. The Bucks would finish the 96th season with five wins in their final seven games. Nick, did you think the 14-year run of losing seasons was about to end in 1997? I think we could see as they finished that season very strongly in 1996 that something was going on. But to think they were going to totally turn around and, and jump out to the great start, I don't think any of us saw that. I mean, the coaching staff was in place. The players are starting to become in place. Uh, it's, it's the baggage, the baggage of that that awful double-digit losing history. Because even before, let's go back to some of the Sam Weiss early years or Ray Perkins. There was some promise when they first started that quickly went right down downhill. So with Tony, it's like we thought they would be good. 
playoff team, maybe, you know, I don't think anyone said, yeah, they're definitely going to make the playoffs. They're definitely going to win a playoff game. I don't think any of us really saw that coming. And go back to 96, everybody always points to the San Diego game, you know, the game on the West Coast that they won out there, which they probably shouldn't have won. And it's when I've actually gone back doing some research on this podcast that I was trying to remember what we all wrote about as the beat writers back then. And I don't think, I think some of us hinted that this might be the start of a turnaround, but none of us really thought it was. Now, years later, when they finally went to the Super Bowl and won that Super Bowl, you had Warren Sapp and Derek Brooks talking about being in their hotel room the day before, saying, We're tired of being the yucks. This ends tomorrow. We start the. And they pointed to that. You come out after that game, right? Immediately. It came out like years later because like, you can look back and say, it was that San Diego game on the West Coast. We were 1-19. We won a game out there, you know, and, and that kind of got them going. So, yeah, I think the promise was there. The potential was there. But to say we all predicted this was going to happen, I don't recall that. Do you think the change from the orange to the pewter red colors was a good one, something that needed to happen? I have to mix the motions on, on the uniforms because I still remember that the, the guys in those, in those uniforms, you know, with Buccaneer Bruce on, on the helmet, uh, they almost got to a Super Bowl. There you go. They almost got to a Super Bowl in 1979. They had a couple of good years. So if they were had never had a winning season, I'd say, yeah, maybe it's the uniforms. But I think it was fortuitous timing where they changed the uniforms as they got good again. And people, and let's face it, the uniforms did look better. I mean, they, they, there's no doubt. Everything from the logo to the colors. The, I, I remember when they were we were trying to figure out what they were going to come out with, the top secret project here to get the new uniform. Rico Diosso, who you know very well, uh, call me up one day out of the blue and says, hey, 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 Nick, he goes, um, you covered the Tepe Bandits? And I go, yeah, I did. And he goes, uh, what, were, what were the uniform colors? And I told him what they were, you know. And at the time, it didn't hit me what it was, but the, but the Buccaneer new uniforms were very similar in color scheme to the Bandits. And so I should have realized I wasn't smart back then as I am now. I should have realized that's what he was fishing for. But uh, then when he came, I even saw him at the press conference and said, now I know why you were asking about the Bandits uniform." So I guess they wanted to be similar, but not exactly the same. So, but I do like, I mean, overall, I, I think it was an improvement over the old uh, creamsicle uniform we all made fun of all those years. How did the players take to the change to the new colors? Well, we kind of liked the color change. I mean, the orange was okay, but I think it just had that stigma with it from the previous years of you know, going through all the challenging and losing seasons they had. And I think we're changing it out of that uh that popsicle orange to, you know, the red and the, the black and the gray, I think was a good change. So what else was happening in the world on September the 21st, 1997? Radio 1 News. Bill Clinton was in the White House and Tony Blair had just taken up residence at number 10 Downing Street. Honey by Mariah Carey was the number one US single, whilst over here in the UK, top of the charts with a verve with the drugs don't work. Kiss the Girls starring Morgan Freeman Ashley Judd had just been released in the US, and number one in the UK film charts was Volcano starring Tommy Lee Jones. I did make reference in the last show about 2012 being one of the worst disaster movies ever made. Volcano is the undisputed worst. It is so bad it's almost watchable. In sports, Mike Piazza became the second person to hit a ball out of Dodger Stadium, and the then Florida Marlins were on their way to their first winning season, post-season appearance, and ultimately the World Series. The Devil Rays, of course, would not make their debut until the following spring. Down in Tampa, the Bucks were 3-0 for only the second time in their existence, the other being in 1979, which was their first playoff season, and of course the season we covered in episode 1. Warren Sapp was out with an injured ankle, but was very animated on the sideline. 
Jimmy Johnson was coaching his 100th game and of course he had chosen Miami over Tampa Bay, being quite vocal in his criticism of Trent Dilfer in the process. This game was also big news in the UK, with Channel 4 making it their game of the week and host Gary Imlach was in Tampa alongside Leroy Selman on the sidelines. They also had me introduce the show. I even managed to get it on the first tape to the surprise of my future Sky Sports producer. Live from Tampa, Florida, it's a hot summer night of the NFL on TNT. The fans are welcoming their undefeated Buccaneers, and this sellout crowd is ready for their battle against the Miami Dolphins. The Buccaneers will be 3-0 for the first time since 1979. A sellout crowd in Hand Stadium. Better than 74,000 Rockets fans have gathered here to celebrate the emergence of one of the fine young teams in the NFL, the undefeated Tampa Bay Buccaneers, as they host their interstate rivals, the Miami Dolphins, who come in tonight with a 2-1 and one record. And good evening, everybody. I'm Bert Lundquist, along with Pat Hayden and Mark May. Welcome to Houlihan Stadium, and welcome to the emergence in the national spotlight of pewter power. The Buccaneers change their colors and their uniforms. They go with red and pewter, and lo and behold, they're undefeated for the first time since 1979. An undefeated record, a sold-out stadium, a playoff atmosphere. Coach Dungy, what did you tell your team about this atmosphere, what this game means to them? Well, it's a big game for us, but we just talked about playing our style, playing buck ball for 60 minutes. You're the calming force, you're always poised, but your special team coach, Joe Marciano, was running around like he wanted to hit somebody. Yeah, we got to keep him under control a little bit, but uh, hopefully our special teams will set the tempo tonight. The Buccaneers starters. On the offensive line, Paul Gruber, Jim Pine, Tony Mabry, Jorge Diaz and Jason Odom. Jackie Harris started at tight end with Reed Alantony and Horace Copeland, the wide receivers. Trent Dilfer, of course, at quarterback, and in the backfield, WD-40, Warwick Dunn and Mike Allstott. On defence, the Bucks played a 4-3. Without Warren Sapp, the front four was Chidi Hanatu, Marcus Jones, Brad Culpepper and Regan Upshaw. The linebackers, Derek Brooks, Holly Nickerson and Jeff Gooch. Donnie Abraham and Anthony Parker started the corner, with John Lynch and Melvin Johnson the safeties. The Buccaneers were going to kick off, and Kenny Gant was doing his shark dance across the field to fire up the crowd, something the NFL would probably not allow now. Kenny was a great guy. Kenny was a high-energy guy. Just he, would, he excelled. So with him doing that, a lot of people knew that they had to give it 110%, because if not, they were going to look bad on film. So he was a leader on special teams, and that's how we were able to thrive on special teams. And basically, as you know, the puck team, Kenny was a big influence on that as one of my forces. And so he was just, he was one of those guys, good guy, funny guy, always laughing, but he gave you 110% every time, every play. Dan Marino had never lost to the Buccaneers, with wins in 1985, 88 and 1991. Miami were 4-1 all-time against the Bucks, with their only loss coming on Monday Night Football in 1982. More on that game in a future episode. The Dolphins went three and out as cornerback Donnie Abraham dropped a potential interception. Carl the Truth Williams had a 25-yard punt return and the crowd was really getting into it. Trent Dilfer completed a 21-yard pass to Warwick Dunn on third down and then Mike Allstock converted another one with a typically bruising run at the middle. The Bucks, they were at the Miami three-yard line. Second down, play fake, left side, touchdown Allstock. Mike Allstead will bull you for one or two yards on one play and then the next play 
He sneaks out of the backfield, and he's got real soft hands. 65 catches a year ago. And like Warwick Duncan, hurt you multiple ways, but in a different variety. Michael Houston converted the extra point, and the Bucks led 7-0. The defence forced another punt, and then power runs by Mike Allstott led to the play-action becoming really effective, with Horace Copeland getting into the action. Trent Dilfer had to come out for one play after a defender fell on his ankle, giving backup Steve Walsh the chance to come in for one handoff. Then Trent Dilfer returned, and he got a standing ovation as he came back onto the field. Those 28,000 who were here a year ago were booing him then. Yeah. <laughs> Those are welcome sound to the quarterback when he plays at home. I was scared. I felt a sharp pain in my knee, but I didn't hear a pop, Trent said after the game. I always told myself I don't ever want to lie on the field, so I went to the sideline and said to myself, it's going to feel better, and it did. Trent's next pass was actually intercepted by linebacker Zach Thomas, his first pick since December 96. But his illustrious counterpart was really struggling, Dan Marino going 1 of 7 for just 9 yards in the first quarter. As the second period started, the Buccaneer offence was on the march again, going 76 yards in 12 plays. It's first and goal from the one. Dunn and Allstott behind Dilfer. Play action. Allstott wide open. They know when they're in good hands. They're going to name a sandwich or street or something after Mike Allstott here in Tampa. And I think the people here, the, the people, the, the blue-collar types, love a guy like this who gives you everything he has, every play, every game, and that's the definition of being open. Mike Allstott entered his Buccaneer career with 305 receptions and 13 touchdowns, but nearly half those scores came in his first two years. He never came close to the 65 receptions he had in his rookie 96 season, but 305 remains fifth in franchise history, just one behind Warwick Dunn. Only Mike Evans, James Wilder and Mark Carrier rank ahead of the two of them. But Mike, he'll always be remembered as the battering ram running back. Oh my God, I mean, I, I, to this day, I have to laugh when I'm watching a game, whether it's NFL or college, and something compares to a certain player I just saw, or they just saw, to Mike Allstock. Oh, there, Mike. No, no, there's no, there's no one like Mike Allstock who just runs that line and bang off of players left and right and, and somehow get through that line and make plays. I mean, it's just, uh, I mean, I always wonder how he, injury-wise, I mean, he was very lucky he didn't get hurt more because he really took a beating while he was playing, but I, I used to love watching him run through those lines. The week before this game, Mike scored one of the most famous touchdowns in Buccaneer history when he carried a whole bunch of Vikings into the end zone with him from a yard out. I, not only do I remember it, and I've seen, I know it's high on your list of top up plays, I know that, but uh, I, I, a great anecdote here was uh, several weeks, maybe it might be the week after that play, I was with Tom McEwen, the late Tom McEwen, we used to go to lunch at the Palmasia Country Club. I always thought he took Tom to me to lunch because he liked me at this nice swine country club in Tampa. No, it's because he needed somebody to drive him there. So I just, uh, okay, Tom, I'll drive you there. And he'd actually let me eat with, with, the, with the, all the, the people in the main clubhouse. And um, so we had a nice lunch, and John McKay was always there, retired back in those days, sitting in the corner with his card playing buddies. And so uh, we'd wander over and sort of have chit-chat a little bit before we went back to the office. Well, that particular day, we go over and start chit-chatting. And I just said, hey, coach, I said, I'm sure you watched the Buck game on Sunday. What do you think about that all-stop touchdown run you know, against the Vikings? And he looked at me, he said, Nick, he goes, um, greatest run I've ever seen. 
John McKay, great. Now, this is the guy who coached OJ and, and Mike and Gary and all these great running backs at SC and Ricky Bale in the NFL. And I said, well, coach, I said, I just, I mentioned, I go, you coach all these great running backs at Southern Cal and you see all these great running backs. How can you possibly say that? He goes, here's how I say it. He goes, I've never seen a play where a guy, a one yard run, where almost every player on defense either hit him, touched him, had a shot at him, and he still kept fighting and fighting and fighting and gets that in. So he goes, greatest one yard run I've ever seen in my life. So there you go, John McKay, no less, said it was the greatest <laughs> touchdown run he's ever seen in his life. TNT even took the opportunity to interview the greatest buccaneer of them all, Leroy Selman, on the sideline. The Tampa Bay Bucks lead 14 to nothing, trying to go 4-0 for the first time since Leroy and Dewey Selman led this team from last to first in 1979. What impresses you about this team? Well, I'll tell you what, the overall strength of the team is just amazing, both defensively and offensively. They got players that can come up with a lot of big plays. Did you ever think the fans would come back like this? Hey, I love it. We always knew that we had the best fans in the National Football League, and I think this is a demonstration of that. The Dolphins took most of the second quarter to mount an 85-yard drive that culminated in Marino finding O.J. McDuffie from 10 yards out, and the half ended with the Bucks ahead 14-7 as the Tampa Bay offense took a knee on the final play. This is the BuckPower.com Podcast Network. The Bucks opened the second half with a 70-yard drive that included being the recipients of a very dodgy pass interference call against Terrell Buckley. This is only the fifth field goal attempt of the year for Michael Houston. And it comes from 22 yards out. Houston is now 4 of 5. And the Tampa Bay Buccaneers crack open the second half with a sustained drive. It ends in a Houston field goal and they increase their lead to 10. Miami had a field goal attempt tipped by Jason Maniecki, and four plays later, from the Miami 38-yard line, Trent Dilfer found the end zone once again. Here's Dilfer with a great fake, and a man deep, caught, touchdown, redid I mean, what a turnaround for Dilfer. 19 interceptions a year ago, now he's got three touchdowns tonight alone. Yeah, and it looked like Boomerang Esiason on the fake there. And then when you run the ball as well as they have tonight and this season, the safeties can't help the corners. And I tell you, Reedale Anthony, you know, caught 18 touchdowns a year ago at the University of Florida. And catches his, uh, a nice touchdown there with a well-thrown ball by Trent Dilfer. Look at the kind of offense they've generated tonight. Three touchdowns, a field goal, one interception, and the half ended one drive. And look at some of the drives. You had a 59-yarder. Then you got a 76-yarder, you got a 70-yarder there. I mean, they are really controlling the line of scrimmage. And again, we talked about it, Mark, an emerging offensive line. Well, the happiest guy out there's got to be the punter, Tommy Bonhart. He hasn't kicked the punt yet. <laughs> the Dolphins pulled the score back to 24-14 as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar scored on a one-yard dive. The Buccaneer offense took over once more, and in spite of having the drive kept alive by a Miami personal foul penalty, intentional grounding on Dilfer led them facing third and forever from their own 42-yard line. Third and 28, four-man Miami rush, screen pass. Warwick Dunn. A beautiful call by David Shula, the offensive coordinator, executed to perfection. Look at this. Look at the big guys out in front. They're going to throw great blocks. There you see Diaz throwing the block, but watch 61 to the left of your screen. Mayberry gets a cut right there, and that springs Ward Dunn for the touchdown. Outstanding execution by the offense. 
58 yards on third and 28. I never saw Warwick Dunn cross the goal line as a very large Scotsman in a kilt, we'll call him Graham Reed for now, landed on top of me in wild celebration. All I could say picking myself up was, that's 29 points for my fantasy team, as I started Warwick Dunn that week. This game against Miami was Trent Dilfer's best for the Buccaneers, throwing four touchdown passes. How do you regard him now? Yeah, you know, again, looking back now, it's easy, because to me it was an anomaly. I mean, he had one or two really pretty good seasons back then, and that's really about it. Yeah, he won a Super Bowl because the Baltimore had a great defense, not because he was a great quarterback, but he was a very, I, I think I've seen the word in many places, on your, on your website, very average quarterback. I mean, he really was for the sixth overall pick in the draft. He didn't live up to those expectations. But, you know, I, I went back to that draft. Again, more research. Went back to that draft, and you realize that Hayes Shuler was the first quarterback, picked third overall. Trent was sixth. And then there were not another another quarterback draft until the fourth round. And then no, totally, I think there were nine quarterbacks drafted that entire draft, and not one of them. I mean, Gus Farratt might be the biggest name. Think about this from that draft. That's how bad of a draft quarterback draft class it was. But a little aside here was, before the draft, you all know this, there's a lot of, you know, poker is going on, liars poker with the, with the GMs and the coaches and the teams with the media. And I got a hold of Sam a few days before the draft to talk about that draft. Sam and I actually one-on-one with him. And he started talking about, everybody at the time thought they would go after Dilfer was there, but not really on the radar. And we started with different players. And I threw out Trent Dilfer's name as, would they take a quarterback with the sixth pick? And Sam started talking about, he, they like Trent. He liked Trent. They, 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 there's a good chance they would take him. So I'm thinking, is he blowing smoke up my, you know what? Is he being honest? And the more I thought about it, the more I listened to Sam and dissecting what he said, I said, they're going to draft this guy. So we started gearing our draft coverage that they're going to take this guy, and they did. And I can see why. I'm paying what he was, you know, what he did in college. was a very good quarterback and certainly had every, all the physical attributes you expect from a quarterback, but never really lived up to those expectations. I have always regarded Trent as one of my favourite players because of how nice a person he was off the field whenever I dealt with him. He's very self-depreciating these days about his playing career as he's carved out a very good new role as a QB analyst. Did you find him easy to deal with during his time in Tampa? Yeah, yes and no. That's a mix. That's a, that's a point of question. Where I'm lucky enough, back then in the day when newspapers, well, newspapers were still surviving and we had a lot of money to spend, they actually sent me to the West Coast for a week to do a big story on Trent Dilfer, his family, his, his teammates, his, where he grew up, his high school coach, spent the week out there with him and a lot of members of his family. And I liked them. You know, the first of the impressions was, you know, getting to know, you know, and as he came with, with, the, with the Bucks, though, because of how things were going on back then, you know, with, with the team and the locker and everything else. Yeah, it was very divisive. And uh, there were some stories written later on in Sam's career that you wonder who the source was for those stories. It was Trent, no doubt, you know, no doubt. So I, I, I kind of saw that side of him that was like, yeah, not as nice as I would like, you'd like to think it was. But I always, when, once he went to this TV career, what I guess he's still doing now to an extent, I mean, I very knowledgeable, very smart, you know, has done a good job. And so I think he's a good person, but I think it would come up some moments during the buck years where you saw kind of that, that, that other side of him in the locker room. The Dolphins would put together a drive that saw Marino find Fred Barnett on fourth down to bring the score once again to within 10. But an old fashioned onside kick recovery by Tony Bowie ended Miami hopes. Tony came up with a ball, but no helmet. The Bucks ran out the clock with Mike Allstott, and they were 4-0. Year-old Tony Dungy, in his second season as head coach, maintained their undefeated status to start the season. I would love, just love to see Tony smile before that clock reads 0-0.
There he goes right there. Outstanding. And that was Richie McKay, the general manager of the Bucks, who, as we said, did a great job of drafting guys, and Tony has coached them all. Among other things, this is a team that's in really good shape relative to the salary cap. Yeah, got a bunch of bucks next year, no pun intended. And the buck does not stop here. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> you've been saving it. Trent Dilfer, another outstanding day. Dilfer would finish 18 of 24 for 248 yards and four touchdowns. Mike Allstar would have 95 yards and 18 carries, but it may surprise many Buck fans to know he only ever had seven 100-yard games in his career. Warwick Dunn's long-scoring reception took him over 100 yards, one of three such games he would have with the Bucks. It is good having you involved in this podcast, Tommy, as you never got on the field for this actual game. For the second time in team history, the Buccaneers didn't punt once, the previous time against Green Bay in 1981. But the following week against Arizona, the coaching staff obviously felt really guilty and they called your number for a fake punt pass that you completed to Tony Bowie for 25 yards. What do you remember about that play? Well, I mean, it probably wasn't so much about me throwing the pass. It was probably about Tony Bowie because Tony, after we executed the play and he gets back and comes over to the sidelines, he goes, man, he goes... You're not gonna believe what happened. And I said, "What?" He said, "When he backed up to block the guy, the guy headbutted, and so he knocked his helmet down. And when he looked up, he was kind of dizzy. So he said, when he looked up, he saw three balls. And so he said, he, thank God he caught the right one because if he went for the wrong one, he would have missed it. But and we we were I were you know we threw some to him during the week, so he didn't used to catching them. But I mean, yeah, it was pretty much it was pretty much on time and on rhythm and just getting it up so that he could just run under." not trying to throw a bullet across the middle and but just getting to him and he was like shit he said i looked back and he said i saw three balls and he said thank god i caught the right one that one pass completion technically puts you ahead of tom brady in quarterback rating <laughs> uh i'll take it that play can be found on buckpower.com as all the games in the 1997 season have got multiple video highlights available to bring back memories for buck fans everywhere how did the rest of the season pan out for you? We went into Green Bay, and that's that was probably, at that time, I was having the best year of my career, leading the NFC and all that, and I broke my collarbone in Green Bay. They wouldn't let me, Rich wouldn't let the GM, Rich McKay, wouldn't let me stay on a rehab for six weeks and come back and play because we had things going so well. He just, he just didn't think twice about putting me on IR and brought in somebody else. So that was a little disappointing because that was really – probably one of the best years uh, that I have had. Tommy, thank you for taking the time to reminisce with Buck fans around the world. What are you doing now? I've, I've invested in two companies. One is a, an all-natural sweetener company. Uh, that's a sugar substitute that doesn't affect the blood sugar level. It has no aftertaste. And the other company that I invested, I have a partner in that one, that uh, sugar-free, gluten-free margarita mix. Back in Tampa, TNT went down to the field to talk with Tony Dungy and Hardy Nickerson. Tony, one and eight a year ago, you didn't lose your faith. Now you come back, you've won nine of the last 11. What's been the difference? Well, we just played with composure, and uh, obviously the young kids on offense making big plays helps us. We were a little down on defense today. We didn't have Warren and Rufus Porter, and we knew we were going to have to make some plays, but we've been playing as a team. One week it's offense, one week defense, one week special teams, and that's what makes you good. Congratulations. I don't even want to talk to your team, but we're going to talk to Hardy Nickerson right. for a second. For years, you've been the only Pro Bowl player on this team. 
We're talking upstairs. We heard Mark May and Pat Hayden say he thinks you're going to have some teammates this year. Oh, yeah. We've got a lot of guys who are playing like all, all pros this year. And uh, we're just hanging together as a team. Uh, we've jailed as a team. Everybody's playing great football, and it's great to be out here tonight on Sunday night. What about the difference? A year ago, you come out here, empty stands, false hopes. I mean, now you come in here, sold-out stadium, playoff atmosphere. Talk about the difference for you. Well, you know, it's a big difference. Last year, we were 0-4. This year, we're 4-0. And, uh, you know, last year, our fourth game of the season, we hardly had any fans in the stands. You know, tonight we had a, sell a sellout, a record, record crowd. And uh, we're just pumped up. We're playing one game at a time. And uh, we want to get out here and play well in front of our home crowd tonight. Congratulations, a great win. Thank you. The Bucks would go on to beat the Cardinals the following week to move to 5-0, but the winning streak would come to an end in Green Bay. The Packers would ultimately be the Bucks' nemesis that season as they won the return game in Tampa 2, leading to them winning the NFC Central title, but the Bucks making the playoffs in the wildcard. They would of course end their postseason run too on the frozen field at Lambeau Field in January. 1997 was the year the Bucks became known to America, Warren Sapp being the main character with his rivalry with Brett Favre starting that postseason. They would become one of the feature teams for the next six years, culminating in their Super Bowl win. Eight Bucks would make the Pro Bowl in 97. Four on offence, Dilfer, Dunn, Allstott and centre Tony Mabry, along with four on defence, Harley Nickerson, Derek Brooks, Warren Sapp and John Lynch. And if you're wondering where Rondé Barber was during 1997, it was mostly on the sideline. He just had one regular season appearance against Arizona in which he admittedly was pretty terrible. He was nearly cut as a third round pick rookie. Thankfully, he remained on the roster and all the memorable days that would follow over the next 15 seasons. Hugo, looking back, who do you see as being the main force behind the turnaround in Tampa Bay? Was it the Glazers, Rich McKay, Tony Dungy, Warren Sapp, Derek Brooks? I don't want to seem like a cop-out answer, but I think it's all of the above. I really don't think you can say one particular person or thing. I, I saw with the Glazers who had the, um, the, the smarts to hire Tony Dungy. I mean, back in the time when people were afraid to hire Tony Dungy or any black coach for that matter, totally ridiculous. They, they pulled the trigger and they, and they hired Tony Dungy. I think Rich McKay was the perfect jam at that point because not only was a capologist and knew how to play the salary cap, he knew talent and knew how to get to bring the right players in chemistry-wise, talent-wise, etc. Uh, again, Tony was the guy. I mean, no, I mean, I, the team that won that Super Bowl, that was Tony's team so much on the stage. So to me, in my world, he's won two Super Bowls, one with the Bucks, you know, an absent, and one, of course, with the Colts. So Tony was, was – and Tony had a great staff, too. Remember Monty and all the other folks they had on the staff? He was smart to surround himself with, with good people. But again, you have the greatest staff in the world, the greatest coach in the world. Gee, like Bill Belichick last year with the Patriots, if you don't have the talent – you're not going to go anywhere. So you had to have the talent. I mean, it goes back that defense was as good a defense as any, and I mean any, in the history of the NFL with Sapp and Brooks and Lynch. And, gee, all those guys are in the Hall of Fame, I believe. Rondé will be or should be, you know. So that was an incredible defense. I think the offense to me was good, but the defense was spectacular. So that's what I think it's a combination of all the above. Are there any other players from the 97 team you enjoyed dealing with? Well, Warwick Dunn was on that team, you know, as a running back. And I, I to me... I always think one of my favorite players, I think of the people who were not only great players, but great people off the field. And Warwick Dunn was one of those people. Derek Brooks is another one. Those are two guys I always, always think about. I mean, you know, to me, it's, it's, it's one of those teams that, I mean, I, I go back to the defense. Warren Sapp and I were never buddies. We were still aren't buddies, you know. But, I mean, you can't begrudge the count. I think it really came out that year. I mean, it's a guy who, I mean, there's no doubt when he was in this 
at his best. I mean, he was unstoppable on the defensive line. So uh, I think Hardy Nickerson was still on that team, if I believe right. And I remember Hardy first came, and, he, and at that time the defense was horrible. He kind of kind of start, put the defense in the right frame of mind mentally as far as as far as his physical presence on the field. I've never seen a player in my life who could be as intense and crazy on the field as, as, as Hardy was. And after the game, he was like very calm and quiet. And I remember one of the first times I even said to him, I said, I, I, I how do you turn that switch that quickly he goes you're on the field you're in one mode you're off the field you're in another mode you know and he could he could, he could do that so uh, those are some of the guys that i mean jump out at me this podcast has been a revival for former tampa tribune writers with jerry johnson and roy cummings both having been on and now you here too but what is nick puglisi doing now well, Nick Pelosi, I still love the fact that there's not a Tampa Tribune, and I hate that that it's gone away. But I am actually uh, the, uh, the the sports editor for Gannett. We have 18 properties in the state of Florida. I'm the Florida sports editor for Gannett USA Today, and that means I oversee all those properties. And uh, I'm actually also the sports editor of the Palm Beach Post, so it's kind of a double duty there. But it's it's fun because we have a statewide network. In fact, I'm going to tell you right now, Paul, this this if it's okay with you, I'm going to put you on the record here. We were going to try to we will, we can put this podcast on our website it's all over the state because we have a lot of Buck fans around Florida, and uh, and we, we do put Buck coverage on our site. So I'm thinking, in fact, you've had such a great celebrity like Nick Puglisi on your podcast. I think it warrants being put on our network. But that's the kind of that's the kind of power I have as the sports editor of the Gannett Florida Chain. But but yeah, we're covering the whole state these days: pro football, college football, high school, all sports, uh, spring training, golf, auto racing, you name it, we do it. And it's a lot of work, but a lot of fun. And uh, like I said, my only, the only sad, uh, the, the, I hate that the Tampa Tribune no longer exists. And the people you mentioned, the Joeys and, and, and the Roy Cummings should be covering something, you know. And, and they are, they're still involved, but not like we all used to be with the Tampa Tribune. So I, I'm not happy about that. It's been a pleasure having you on this podcast. And I'm sure we'll have you back again in the future. Nick Puglisi, Pugo, thank you. Paul, very welcome. And you, once again, I will say this, I'm all sincerity. You are the best at what you do. And the Bucks, I know they appreciate what you do. And any Buck fan who doesn't follow you, your podcast or your website or anything you do, I don't care what it is, even if you're tweeting something out, they're foolish. Follow this guy. He's a legend. And there we have another BuckPower.com podcast. Buccaneers 31, Dolphins 21. But a game that meant so much more than just the scoreline. Please rate and review this episode wherever you get your podcasts. And please get in contact with me via social media, Twitter or at BuckPal.com if you've got any questions about the history of the Buccaneers. My thanks to my guests, Nick Puglisi and Tommy Barnhart. Of course, always my thanks to Al Needham and the executive producer of all the BuckPal podcasts, TJ Reeves. <laughs>